The Quiet Carriage, the show about books and their authors, with your host, Paul J. Laverty, and sponsored by Castlemaine's signature bookstore, Stone Man's Book Group. Broadcast on 94.9 Main FM and across the nation on the Community Radio Network. All aboard. Welcome to The Quiet Carriage. I'm Paul J. Laverty, broadcasting from Jaja Wurrung Country on Castlemaine's 94.9 Main FM and across Australia on the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom. Today on the show, I'm in discussion with author Paul Delgano, talking about his new novel, The Country of Eternal Light, out now via HarperCollins. First up, here's a little bit about the book. An astonishing, inventive, playful, witty, poignant and deeply moving novel from one of Australia's most exciting writers. Margaret Bryce, deceased mother of twins, has been having a hard time since dying in 2014. These days she spends time with her daughters, Eve in Madrid, and Rachel and her family in Melbourne, and her estranged husband, Henry, in Aberdeen. Mostly, she enjoys the experience of revisiting the past, but she's tiring of the seemingly random events to which she repeatedly bears witness. There must be something more to life, she thinks, and death. Spanning more than 75 years from 1945 to 2021, A Country of Eternal Light follows Margaret as she flits from wartime Germany to Thatcher's Britain to modern-day Scotland, Australia and Spain, ruminating on everything from the Piper Alpha oil rig disaster and Australia's black summer bushfires to Mary, Queen of Scots, beheading, the death of Princess Diana and in vitro fertilisation. But why is facing up to what's happened in one's past as hard as, if not harder than, blocking it out completely? A poignant, utterly original and bitingly funny novel about complicated grief and how we remain wanted by our loved ones, dead or alive. And now a little bit about the author, Paul Dolgano. Paul Dolgano is an author and journalist. He was deputy editor of The Conversation in Australia and a senior writer and features editor at the Herald Newspaper Group in the UK. He has written for The Guardian, Archer and Australian Book Review and is currently managing editor of Screen Hub. He is also the author of And You May Find Yourself, which was Sleepers 2015, Polly, Ventura 2020 and Prudish Nation, which is coming out via Upswell Publishing uh, later on in this year. And here is myself in conversation with Paul Delgano discussing his novel, The Country of Eternal Light. Um, This is part one and part two will follow next week. Paul Delgano, thank you for joining me today on The Quiet Carriage. Thanks, Paul J. Laverty. Thank you. I've been following you on social media and I've been wanting to, to get you on the show for a little while now, and I think, to be honest, the main reason is that you stand out as one of the very few Scottish-Australian authors on the scene. But I think you're a bit more Scottish than me. Is that right? Like, how long have you been here for? 
Um, I've been here for 13 years. Um, so, yeah, I moved in here. Uh, I moved here in 2010. My mm-hmm. wife's actually from Melbourne. Oh, right. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the, um, you know, um, the, the percentage of my life spent here increases every year, obviously. But, yeah, m- most of my, uh, the rest of my life has been in Scotland. Yeah, right. So you're in, uh, from Aberdeen, uh, originally, that's, uh, well, near Aberdeen, isn't it? That's, uh, for people that don't know, that's way up in the northeast, probably as far away as you can get to go all the way down to Melbourne, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's like 17,000 kilometres and then some, some loose change. So, yeah, I'm from Aberdeen City, uh, which, oh, as right. you said, is, is pretty far north. It's, it's kind of weird, as, as I'm sure um, you will appreciate and some of your listeners will appreciate that this, the size of your country kind of depends uh, the psychology of what you think about it. So, you know, travelling from Aberdeen to Edinburgh um, would take about two hours or two and a half hours by car. Yeah. And that, that always felt like, you know, a really kind of massive journey when uh, <laughs> yeah. when you're living next to the country so small. Uh, whereas in Melbourne, if I go from where I am in uh, the kind of inner north to, I don't know, somewhere like Frankston um, yeah. <laughs> in the southeast, that night would take two and a half hours and I haven't even left the the kind of city boundaries, you know. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. So, is it is it home for good over here? Um, well, it's it's definitely home for the foreseeable. Um, when I arrived, I had a, a one year old child uh, in tow, mm-hmm. uh, or, or in a little harness, really. And uh, I, my my wife was pregnant with our second child, so they're they're thirteen and twelve years old now. And you know, they go to school here, and this is where they live, and. Uh, for for that reason, as much as any other, I can't really, um, you know, it would have to be a pretty tempting offer to to uproot them and, and myself and, and go somewhere else at that age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm, uh, well, I live in Victoria. Um, I'm over here at the West at the moment. And there really aren't that many Scottish people in Victoria. I hardly ever saw any. And then over compared to over West, where you're absolutely tripping over them. So, uh yeah, it's a bit of a, I always found it was a bit of a rarity, meeting Scottish people. Have you found the same there? Yeah, I think I've got maybe um, maybe two two Scottish friends. Yeah. I, I actually, years ago when I first got here, so I'm, well, well, in like 2012, I think the Stone Roses came to play yes. in uh, Melbourne. I was there. And uh, I went to see that because they were like my, my favourite band when I was a kid, uh, you know, Manchester indie band. And uh, funnily, at that concert, I heard loads of Scottish accents around me. And then, right. um, I, I don't know where everyone went straight after the concert because I, I haven't really heard them for the last, uh, you know, 10 years since then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, in, in keeping with the, bit of the, the Scottish theme here, I've just been looking at your website. I'm very jealous about some of the interviews you've, you've got there and some of the interviews that you've done. James Kelman uh, is there. Uh, Arvin Welsh. Uh, two of my favourites, as I mentioned a bit off air as well, um, that's who I'm doing my PhD on, uh, on Scottish fiction overseas. So I really, uh, really enjoyed them. So uh, a bit jealous with that. But uh, journalism in general uh, has been a really big thing for you, hasn't it? You know, you've, you've written for the and worked for the Herald, uh, the Guardian, the Conversation. Uh, what I wanted to ask you is, did you get into writing novels via journalism or is journalism like an offshoot of you wanting to be an author um i think those yeah they're probably bound up in the same thing so when i um 
you know, I was the first person in my family to go to uni. I'm mm-hmm. from you know, a non-uni kind of background, very working class. And uh, I did English literature, uh, which, um, y- you know, certainly afterwards, once you've done it, you think, why did I do that? It's not very mm-hmm. practical, but it, it was what I was, you know, really interested in. And um, really, after doing, after doing my degree, I taught English as a foreign language, which a lot of people do when they, they graduate. So I traveled a bit doing that and, and really had a bit of a crisis of what to do with my life because, um, you know, what, what you kind of realize coming from a non-university background mm. is this idea of cultural capital. So whereas, uh, you know, other people that I went to uni with suddenly were like, yeah, I'm going to, you know, my, my dad's friends, sisters, brothers, you know, <laughs> uncle runs this publishing company or whatever and I'm going to go there as an intern and you know you, you see all these people going off to do kind of cool things um, I, I literally had nowhere to go to so you know I left school at 14 wow. and fixed uh, washing machines and was a painter decorator for a few years before I went back and actually did my school exams and then university exams so I, I really had no idea what I was doing and was really kind of worried and concerned and thought you know I put all this work in in my degree and I don't know you know, if I'm ever going to get any kind of decent job from it. And, and it was kind of through that that I, you know, I had, I had a sense that I wanted to write. Uh, I didn't have a huge ambition to be a journalist, um, but those two things together, thinking, oh, well, that, that's something I could do and maybe get paid for writing. Um, and, and definitely more, uh, like I've worked as a news journalist, but uh, I'm definitely more drawn to kind of features writing and more kind of cultural stuff. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I just kind of thought that that would be not a stepping stone to becoming a, a novelist or anything. So I really didn't think that, that it wasn't even on my radar as a, a possible thing for me, but just really as a um, practical kind of job that I could do that would uh, involve writing and you know paying my bills from writing things. So when you were a teenager, um, away from study, what was there a lightning bolt moment that wanted uh, that made you want to go back to study, like a, a book you read or, or anything that happened? Um, in terms of <clears throat> books I read, um, not so much. But I, I remember um, a, a kind of friend I had from that I'd had in secondary school. His parents were English teachers, and um, I do remember distinctly being around at his house and just the way his mum and dad talked about books and things like that, Mm -hmm. and thinking, just feeling really interested in that because nobody um, I grew up around, you know, that that wasn't kind of the conversations you were having. And so so there was that, and, um, you know, Irvin Welsh, who you mentioned, um, when Trainspotting came out, I was really um, kind of amazed really uh, and mm. hadn't read any James Kelman or anything like that by that stage so just kind of amazed that there would be this um, kind of recognisable voice not, not that I'm from that part of Scotland but a, a kind of close to home kind of voice doing something interesting that, that was a bit of an influence and then really um, when I was working as a washing machine uh, repair guy for what, whatever reason, I think a combination of those things I've mentioned, I, I went back, because uh, I didn't have any school exams, I went back to um, a night class um, to just see if I'd be any good at uh, any kind of studies. And that, that was in English um, English literature, so like a, a higher, which um, would be like the year 12 exams here, I guess. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that teacher, uh, Donald Cunningham, it was his last year, 
teaching who's just about to retire and obviously I was this kind of fish out of water arriving there in a kind of grey um, washing machine repairman outfit <laughs> uh, with my copy of Romeo and Juliet and smelling like other people's laundry which had been kind of in all day uh, not in their laundry but in their washing machines fixing them and um, that that for me was amazing seeing uh, I, I, because everybody dropped out of this class because it was just like a ninth class at a community college. So for about eight weeks, it was just me and uh, Donald, the teacher. And he he would kind of pace from side to side, kind of looking into the middle distance, enraptured with the, the books, you know, so Huckleberry Finn and Catch-22 and Romeo and Juliet. And, and I was sitting there just uh, unable to articulate anything, really, just really very clumsy and not, not a very good vocabulary or anything, but just thinking... My God, here's somebody who, you know, books really mean something to them. It's something palpable. It's not uh, um, kind of, I don't know, distant or, mm-hmm. or bookish, to use that word, kind of interest in, in literature. It's this really embodied emotional experience. And um, I, I felt really inspired by that. And kind of, even though I couldn't kind of say anything about it at the time I just felt so tongue-tied yeah. I'd, I'd leave those classes just you know wanting to do star jumps and cartwheels and um, so, so that definitely sparked the, the interest that then led to me going and doing an English degree and everything that came after it You are listening to The Quiet Carriage on 94.9 Main FM the Community Radio Network and sponsored by Stone Man's Book Room with myself, Joe's Paul J. Laverty. And now we return to my chat with another Paul, Paul Dalgano, discussing his new novel, The Country of Eternal Light. Fantastic. And it's worked out pretty well for you. You had your, your debut novel came out 2020, Polly. And yeah. you also had a memoir as well, uh, and you may find yourself, and that's about you yeah. settling in Australia. That's uh, I've actually been looking for that. It's sadly out of print now. Is there any plans to re-release that? Uh, well, I'd certainly love to, but um, yeah, it's in it's in this kind of limbo state now. So the publisher who published it, um, Sleepers, mm-hmm. sadly went out of business. Um, you know, I think maybe a year after that book came out, and. Um, because of that, their, their entire um, back catalogue either got picked up by other publishers mm. or pulped. So I'm, I'm sitting on a box of about 200 of those books, but I don't think anybody else is. Um, but the, the kind of positive, from my point of view, is all the rights reverted to me because the, the publishers ceased to trade. So, yeah, that, that's a manuscript I have. And um, it's actually a book I'm really proud of. I think I think it was really good. It's just nobody read it or, or you know, 10 people read it or whatever it was. But I actually have quite a lot of belief in that book and think it's... Um, it was well done uh, you know it was kind of essentially it's kind of I don't really know what I was doing but it's kind of um, to me it kind of reads like a novel but it's a memoir but it's really thematically concentrated on you know fatherhood and you know moving away from home and all these kind of issues mm-hmm. and we're here today to speak about your latest novel A Country of Eternal Light out via Harper Collins. huge congratulations on that by the way I enjoyed it I enjoyed it immensely. Uh, for those who haven't read it, did you want to give us like your sort of uh, elevator pitch for that? 
Yeah, th- thanks for saying that as well, Paul. Um, yeah, it, it's A Country of Eternal Light. Is, um, it's a story told by a woman called Margaret Bryce, who is dead at the time uh, of, of her narration. Uh, so she died in 2014, and she now finds herself in some kind of post-life crisis, uh, and we don't know where she is. She doesn't know where she is. It's not like um, there's a afterworld as such that she's she's walking around in with angels and things. Um, she's not a particularly religious woman. She she says at one point she doesn't believe in souls, and yet uh, here she is a number of years after her death um, revisiting moments uh, from her past uh, out, out of sequence and um, particularly you know times with her best friend and lifelong friend Barb mm-hmm. her twin daughters Eva and Rachel her husband Henry and, and as she goes back um, she, she's not just remembering these things she's actually revisiting them so in, uh, in a number of instances we've got dead Mark and living Mark sharing the, the stage as it were in the same scene and she starts getting a certain sense she can interact with these things in the past, that she's not just a passive observer, but also increasingly um, a sense of unease that she she's kind of fighting against, that there may be something in her past that she's forgetting accidentally or deliberately that she's probably going to have to face up to if she ever hopes to uh, rest, which, which ultimately becomes her call. Mm. It's such an interesting style. It's almost a like a series of, of, of short passages or, or short stories and they sort of duck and weave through, you know, different times of the of the protagonist who's um Margaret. At one minute you've got her as a child, the next minute she's uh an old lady and the next minute she's uh deceased. And I really loved that. Did did that style come naturally to you, or and was it something you you decided upon early? It was something I decided on fairly early, based on a, a conversation I had a few years ago about how um, really about how grief works and how it's um, as you know we all know um, or will know in our lives. Um, it's it's non-linear, mm. um, and it's also. Um, what I've found about grief is just that, you know, you would kind of um, hope in the, in the film version of grief, I guess, the moments that come to mind are almost, you know, Shakespearean. So, you know, it's when you're reaching across the table and holding, you know, a father holding his son's hand and hearing, you know, I'm proud of you, son. And, you know, these, these really heightened uh, kind of moments. But, of course, in reality, the, the things that kind of... Um, decalcify and float, float up to the surface of your mind can can seem on the face of them quite mundane so it's not it's not the hand reaching across the table but it might be that time you went to the chinese you know restaurant together that for no particular reason or you went for a walk along the beach or whatever, whatever the thing is so i was i was really interested in trying to um tell a story that that moves forward from the start to the end but that the actual narrative is is jumping about in years in the way that you mentioned because to me that that reflects uh, the experience of grief that you know we i can't remember how many steps there are five or six steps there's there's meant to be but you know in reality they're all smooshed together and then they all disappear and then number two step comes back and number six step comes back so so yeah it's, it's just meant to really replicate this idea of grief and how we experience it yeah 
everything's been done before, of course. So was there anyone in particular you sort of ripped off or a book that you had sitting alongside this where you're like, that's that's what I'm sort of aiming for? Uh, there's a book uh, that, that I love called uh, Hopscotch by an Argentinian writer, uh, Julio Cortesar. Okay. That... Um, it's really uh, it's it's a kind of sprawling kind of masterpiece of a book, and um, what what it kind of has at the start is you, you get a little introduction where it says, you know, you can read this book in a chronological way, chapter one to seventy three, and that's mm-hmm. completely fine. Or if you want, you can follow this other pattern, and then it gives you this pattern to follow all the way through the book. So you might start on chapter three, and when you get to the end of chapter three. It's got a little number at the bottom, you know, 11. So you turn to chapter 11 and then you turn to chapter 60 and then back to chapter 1. And, you know, my, my, my book's definitely not that. It's not mm-hmm. that level of kind of um, complexity, I think. But um, I, I, I kind of think, I thought after the fact, not while I was writing it, but I thought after the fact there's probably a bit of an echo um, from that because I've always adored that book. It's one of my favourites. And, uh, yeah, that, that has that sense of hopping around all over the place. Mm. And writing it, did you write it chronologically and then go back and cut into it later on, or did you did you write it sort of as it as it is? Um, I, I wrote it as it is, but wow. I'd already done um, a kind of synopsis, so I knew mm-hmm. how the story would read chronologically, um, and because of the fact it's jumping around and there's uh, four or five you know main characters and, and some others too. I, I did a really detailed timeline um, so that, um, you know, let's say it was going back to 1986, it was really uh, important to know um, some of the big things that were going on in the world in 1986 and in that part of the world specifically, but also uh, just the ages of the characters. Um, and of course, we all have two, we're two different ages each year. Um, so just knowing when everybody's birthday was, um, different significant events when people got married, when people died, when um, you know, uh, when it was their 18th. All these kind of different things uh, were on quite a detailed timeline, but, which meant with the kind of chronology sorted in my head plus the uh, the timeline there, it, it made it a lot easier to just follow my instincts and think, right, I'm going from you know, 1978 to 1994, and I, I kind of know where everyone's at in their lives at that stage. You are listening to The Quiet Carriage, and there we hear the author, Paul Dolgano, discussing his new novel, The Country of Eternal Light, which is out now via HarperCollins. And that was part one, and you can hear part two next week on the show. Uh, the Quiet Carriage is sponsored by Stoneman's Bookroom, and you can hear us on 94.9 Main FM, the Community Radio Network, and all other episodes are available on Spotify and all good podcast platforms. Until next time, keep reading.